Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Benmir. Today's guest is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a historian and commentator on fascism, authoritarian leaders, and propaganda, and the threats these present to democracies. In this episode, Alain and Ruth discuss her latest book, Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, Trump's authoritarian behavior here in the United States, and what steps can be taken to reverse authoritarian trends around the world. Again, and I want to thank you for taking the time. Yep. Uh, you know, you recently wrote a book, uh, uh, Authoritarianism from Mussolini to Trump. What, what prompted you to write this uh, particular book at this juncture? So two things. One, uh, as a historian, I was very concerned with how, um, you know, most of the autocrats in power were really rewriting history. And uh, so you had, you know, Putin starts to put statues uh, uh, of Stalin up and then he's sending historians who are writing about the, you know, the, the gulags to prison. So this kind of thing. And you see in Hong Kong, uh, the Chinese are not only arresting, um, you know, present generation of dissidents, they're also trying to erase the memory of dissidents and resistance by arresting people who were active in the 1980s. So this right. was one reason. Uh, I wanted to kind of put, put on the historical record what had happened around the world. Right. So to what extent the rise of Trump uh, has has impacted or has affected or influenced, I should say, you are writing and, and, and particularly a huge amount because this this was so. I already was thinking of I was very disturbed about this historical revisionism, and then Trump came on the scene, and I had started to write for CNN, but mostly on historical things. And so the minute I saw him at hold a rally with the loyalty oaths and the slogans, uh, being you know someone who who started a career studying fascism, I I became very alarmed, and I recognized immediately that he had the the personality and the skills to do an enormous amount of damage. And so I started. That's how I started writing for CNN. I covered the entire campaign. And um, out of that came the idea to, to include him in this book. Um, and some people, you know, thought he shouldn't be in the book because they thought it can't, America can't have anything to do with uh, these, these, you know, global authoritarianism. But I, I beg to differ. And so I put him in there and made my case. And I say, you, you, use, you use the frame, um, a personalist rule. Yes. It's from, from what I'm, I read about from the, the book as well as your articles. This probably would be very applicable to Trump himself. And that is, you know, um, subverting various government and non-government, most of the government institutions to serve his interests at the expense of the national interest. Um, and obviously this is not a, a phenomenon particularly, you know, typical to Trump. Most authoritarian leaders have been trying to do so. Uh, when I want to, uh, you know, I've, I've written a number of articles from my perspective is uh, why democracy is in retreat. So to me, democracy has been in retreat not just since Trump came to power five years ago, but uh, going back even 15 years ago. That is, I think the trend 
began 15, maybe even more years, that authoritarianism has been on the rise. Now, what, what do you attribute that, that why this is on the rise, and why democracy, that is, if you agree with the concept, is in retreat, uh, given the fact that the West, the EU, the United States, and others, been, we've been pushing for democratic reforms all over the world. I'm not sure the degree to which we have succeeded, but instead we are looking now that democracy is not really working uh, in the manner that people expect it to work and from which they can actually benefit. Yeah, I think um, in a way the, the roots of what's going on now can go all the way back to the end of the Cold War. And the reason that Berlusconi uh, Silvio Berlusconi is in my book, is that he, he was the first to bring the far right into power. And even though uh, communism had just been, had just collapsed, including in Italy, which had the largest communist party, he recognized that people had a desire to have enemies. And, and so he ran as a savior of Italy from the left. And so this formula where you bring the far right into government, which hadn't been possible while communism was active, for example, in Germany, the fall of communism unleashed all of this, um, you know, kind of right wing energies that had been suppressed. So that's a longer thing. And it's also the time when Putin comes into power and starts this kind of, and I think these autocrats learn from each other and they see, one sees what the other does. And then you had an acceleration after 2008 with the, the financial crisis and uh, the rise of these kind of populist movements, which had already started. And again, Italy's very important uh, with the Northern League. And, and so you had this, I agree, this kind of disappointment with establishment politics. And, and when in Strongman, I go over a hundred years and it is in these moments where people feel the system is changing and established politicians and politics are failing them that people can come from outside. Often they come from outside of the system, uh, Mussolini and Hitler and even military coups. These are people who are not uh, established politicians. They're outside the system in a different way. So it creates a, um, an appetite for um, rogue solutions, for solutions that are um, contrary to the norms. And then you have these personalities who come up and realize that they have a space to operate. So people like from Mussolini up to Trump, they read the political marketplace, they see there's a space to act, and they have the right personality to create these movements. And this has happened over and over again. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with you, you know, definitely. But let, let's just take a couple of examples. Let's take, for example, um, uh, Turkish President Erdogan. Now, he came to power and he, has, he undertook significant reforms, economic, social, judiciary. The, 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 uh, and for the first seven, eight years, he has achieved a tremendous achievement in just about all of these fields and accumulated in the interim of course he was being extremely revered uh, as a prime minister but then he started to seek more and more power now why from your perspective as a historian in this regard a person who already enjoying significant power significant respect 
has undertaken such incredible reform and succeed and been praised and held by, by both domestically from the, and from outside. Why, what it is that actually prompt these type of people to make a U-turn and, and begin to seek more and more dictatorial powers. It's almost like, you know, the, the people who, the personality types that have success are, um, and it, it recurs, they're opportunistic. They can have some principles and some ideals, but they also are prepared to change their ways um, if, if that's what's going to, is needed. Look at Viktor Orban, who used to be a centrist and he was voted out and now he's Mr. Far Right. So, and, and it's also that the experience of having power in this kind of personality leads to a desire for even more power. So the, the logic of authority... But you have it already. I mean, for example, take, take, take Trump. Here you have a president of the United States of America. By definition, he's the strongest man on earth, so to speak. Why would he seek more power, more authority? No, because... Because he doesn't, he doesn't have the kind of power that he wants. He he wants a, a more absolute power. He doesn't want any checks and balances on him. He's operating in a democracy, and and so in his way was Erdogan. And then what happened with Erdogan is also he he saw that there began to build an opposition to him. So you had the Geza Park when he wanted to. He started proceeding with the infrastructure, and and he got significant pushback. And this caused him, uh, the same with Putin, in, in when Putin came back as president in 2012, and there was, you know, uh, kind of accusations of fraud and enormous protests. This is when Putin became more repressive. So right. if, they, if they feel that there's any kind of challenge to their, their, their rule, and they're also very, all of them are corrupt, and so they become entrenched in the system and they worry about losing their powers. So they're their psychology is not that of a democratic leader with a small d, because those people recognize that they had a time in power, and and now they're going to be voted out, and they can go off and do something else. That's not how they think. They respond with repression, with more coercion. So Erdogan, you know, he blocked social media, and then he 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 put himself on a path even before the coup attempt to That's become right. much more authoritarian. And so then you have in, in history these moments, and the coup attempt was one, that they're already worried about their future. And so they exploit these moments. Either they create them or they take advantage of what happens. So that's why Erdogan said this, this, uh, this coup attempt was God-given. Of course, yes. And most see, non-authoritarian would never think that way. They don't say a coup attempt against him. He could have been killed. It was... God-given. But authoritarian does because they create this spaces of emergency where they can crack down. Um, and we had the Reichstag fire, and now we have, these are these kind of, I call them shock events in my book. And they always uh, lead to a, a kind of consolidation of power. Um, the, the, the thing I, you know, I, I think one of the reviews of your book, uh, I don't remember the person who did made the reviews, that you sort of is suggesting that you're putting all of these, uh, you know, uh, authoritarians like Mussolini, Hitler, Pinochet, uh, Franco, Gaddafi, Barcelona, Orban, Duarte, and all of that, in a southern lump sum, as if they were all one and the same, and that they came to power, assumed that kind of authority, 
uh, and that you actually did not make the kind of distinction. Is, is, is the criticism valid as far as, far as you're concerned? And if it's not, why not? Um, I think you're referring to the review by Francis Fukuyama in the New York Times. Yes. Um, and I, I do have to say that Francis Fukuyama is mentioned negatively in the book um, as somebody who was uh, kind of doing propaganda on behalf of Gaddafi. So he's in there. Uh, named in the text, and so in theory, he shouldn't have reviewed it because yeah. um, he's not viewed very in a flattering way. But that aside, um, I, I, I refute that charge because I am very careful in the book um, to to say that there are, I, I identify these three different phases of authoritarianism. There's the fascist era, there's the military coups, and then there's post you know kind of you could say post communist. Um, right. And that, and the whole point of the book, the reason I structured it the way I did, with the, the core of it is these tools of rule, the propaganda, the violence, corruption, and each one goes over a hundred years, precisely because I want the reader to see what stays the same and what changes. So the whole premise of the book is to look at these different phases of authoritarianism, and far from putting everybody in the same basket saying that it was it meant something in the interwar when it was fascism and it evolved in a different way so of course today in in 21st century you know people come to to power via elections in general so i make these differentiations throughout the book um i think that as a political scientist he didn't he didn't like the fact i didn't have a long methodological discussion in my introduction i didn't explain huh. Um, very precisely, for example, why I don't have communists. Um, I have some things. So he would have liked more of that. But I also think that if you're writing a book that is denouncing a certain kind of male power structure and people who are enablers, including Western enablers, um, if you're part of that, you're not going to like the book. You're not going to appreciate the book. You're going to be irritated yeah. by the book. Well, of what I've read... Uh... I didn't finish it, I must admit. It was a short notice, so to speak. But I liked it a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll have some other opportunity to discuss the book in and of itself. It will be a very interesting discussion. But in, in terms of the distinction between various uh, authoritarian leaders, uh, let's take one, for, let's take Trump, who's actually made America first. That is, he wanted to uh, greater authority primarily to exert it here in the United States. Where I say someone like Putin or someone like Erdogan, other than exerting that authority domestically, they have also a much wider agenda. For example, Erdogan is seeking to revive elements of the Ottoman Empire, and he's doing everything possible to try to exert influence on all the countries that yes. were once under the Ottoman Empire. Look at what uh, Putin is doing day, today. Putin is, is uh, not worried really about uh, having uh, the kind of power he wants within Russia. He's got it. He has no, hardly any opposition. But he too regrets how the, the Soviet Union collapsed and he wants to revive element of the Soviet Union. So in that regard, not every authoritarian obviously have the same agenda. No. One is limiting themselves perhaps domestically. Other are looking at a much wider, going beyond their country. Uh, how do you see that? And why? What is the what is the 
if there's a historical perspective behind that, I'd like to for you to comment on that. Yeah. So, so one reason that um, everybody, you know, wants many people want me to call Trump a fascist, and I'm one of the only people because it's very flashy to call him a fascist, and many people do. But the reason I don't call him a fascist is that he's not. In fact, fascism, classic fascism, is about territorial expansion. And he's not, he's not doing that. That's not his interest. Um, now, he, he does do, there's one thing that all of these, those examples you mentioned do. And it's more in the realm of ideology, but it does translate into policy. So I talk about these strong men, all of them, they promise utopia, which is making the nation great, um, mm-hmm. goes with hyper-nationalism. But it's also always making the nation great again. And so they play on nostalgia, and that's very important to their appeal. And so everyone has their own way of doing this. So for Putin, it's the you know imperial Russia and the Soviet sphere of influence, all of that. For Erdogan, and I write about this in the book, it's the, it's the Ottoman Empire. And so these people, in that case, they have expansionist aims. Now for Trump, it's, it's more of a domestic capture. It's when that's things right. were better and you know non-whites couldn't vote and women knew their place. And so it, it's not going to, I may, it's very, I'm very clear in the book that it's not going to look the same everywhere precisely because these, it, it's time and, and place specific, right? However, Trump is, um, he's, inter, he's transnational, international in a different way. Uh, I have, one of my chapters is corruption. And Trump is, uh, it's, this is where they all call themselves anti-globalist. And this is such, you know, uh, such nonsense because no one is more globalist than Trump, for example. His entire right. business model is about licensing his name abroad. He's also involved in, you know, transnational flows of illicit money as, as a money launderer. That's, his, that's also his business model. So he's on the su- supply side of this kind of whole uh, setup of corruption, kleptocracy that Putin benefits from. And it's very interesting to me that the foreign leader that Trump uh, spoke to the most during his presidency wasn't Putin, it was Erdogan. And they were doing innumerable deals. Uh, and so William Barr was involved, you know, try to remove sanctions. On There was all kinds of things going on. And Turkey doesn't get enough attention in our country. Right, so right, right. so they, these things have not caught the interest of the American public. So Trump's a very interesting example because he's doing a lot of the same things, but he's also doing it in a democracy, which Berlusconi is the precedent there. Um, and he's, they, they're not, they weren't able to destroy to the extent of an Erdogan, right? But they're also, he's also very international in his own way. His aims are just different. He's not interested in getting an army and, uh, and, and you know, doing a kind of a annexing another part of another country. That's just not in the cards. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, you mentioned um, a number of um, reasons behind the decline of democracy. One of the is election subversion, disinformation, institutionalized racism, uh, cult, rise of cult personality, say, like, like, like uh, Trump, uh, pervasiveness, and you, and you actually bring something which I did not think about before, that is the presence, the pervasiveness of, of, of firearms 
in the hands of Americans. You, in one of your articles, you suggested, which I, I, I am I'm, I'm very much interested in. I write about it specifically when it comes to gun control. And, and you mentioned the, you know, the startling figures when, in fact, Americans killed a million uh, and a half Americans in all, in all of the wars that since the 50s, only 1 million, 300 million Americans, 300,000 Americans were killed. Uh, currently, we have 400 million, 400 million firearms in the hands of Americans. And I, and I accept, I agree with you in terms of how that is. But I think many of the listeners probably would not make the, the linkage yeah. between the firearms and the erosion of democracy per se. Could you, would you like to elaborate on that for our listeners? Yeah, this is one of the pieces that I, I'm really um, proud of and I want to do more with because I, I, I count, because I'm not an expert in American history, I, I see things a little bit differently. And to me, the very unusual gun culture in the United States and the history of, of deaths by firearms, it's a, it's a threat to democracy in, in several ways. Um, it, first of all, kind of, let's say culturally it, and societally, it creates a kind of mass dehuman, it it dehumanizes, it it creates a desensitization to violence when things that are very unusual in other countries, the sight of, you know, gun riddled bodies, bullet riddled bodies, and all of this loss and trauma, uh, which in other countries would be only around if you have sectarian violence, like in the Lebanese Civil War. Here you have it all the time. And, and when you have desensitization to violence, that's not good for democracy. Um, the other thing is it creates a, a, a generations that are suspicious. Like look at the, the, we have so much research now about the harm uh, of um, shooter drills, mass shooter drills in schools. It teaches kids to see any environment as unsafe and you can't trust anybody. And this is also things that are dangerous for democracy because democracy requires trust in each other and trust in your institutions. And if your schools are places that are, you're you're making people mimic trauma. um, And, and, you know, these are things that they, they, they don't, they just wouldn't, America has an approach which is not followed in other countries. The last part is just maybe more obvious to people finally after January 6th, you cannot have a safe democracy if you you both don't care take care of your extremists, meaning you just let them fester. Everyone from these sovereign sheriffs. I mean, imagine you know other countries tolerating sheriffs who don't really accept the rule of law. They're they're like these rogues, right? To all the other extremists, and they all came together on January sixth, and you allowed them to to amass private arsenals. Um, so, so, so this is gun, the gun problem has to be seen, has to be factored into democracy protection. And I was amazed. It was like a light bulb went on and I thought, well, surely someone's done this before, but I couldn't find anybody who had put those things together before. And, and that is, that's not good. I'm glad to be the first, but it, it's amazing. It shows that there's been a very limited way of thinking about this. That's right. I mean, I mean, the tragedy, the sad, sad thing about it, and to this day, with all this, these numbers that are 
mind-boggling. We still have uh, a party that opposes any kind of gun control laws, which is the greatest travesty, I think, we are living through. Um, you know, one thing you, you, you indicated, and just in connection with this a little bit, you said that to CNN, one of your articles, that, um, that uh, the world's strongmen could fall on their COVID-19 sword. Mm-hmm. What, what it, you know, I understand what's behind it, but again, I want you to explain that to, to our listeners, what it is, why is it you think that way? And, and specifically, I want to connect this with the Trump. Now, here you have a Trump who actually pushed for the, for the vaccine. He was uh, he really very, very, very much so uh, um, provided the funding and all of the vaccine. But then he was the first denial of the importance of wearing masks and, and being getting vaccinated. And only recently he woke up and said vaccination should be good. So, so can, you, can you connect the two and tell me what are your thoughts on the subject? So in general, COVID had been, it's been a double-edged sword because it's created many conditions that help autocracy, everything from giving uh, people emergency powers, like, like look what Orban did briefly. He, he yeah. you know, ruled by decree, right? So people who have bad intentions, uh, we've already talked about, they want to amass more power. They're going to use, they're going to take advantage of a crisis because they don't really care about public welfare of this is the key thing. Strong men don't care about public welfare. They care about, uh, they're self-interested. They care about keeping power. And and so it wasn't just Trump that, you know, played games with the relief funds and tried to, you know, funnel them to cronies. If you have strong men in power, any kind of, uh, any kind of funding and, and governmental prop- processes are going to be diverted away from public benefit to their own benefit. So Trump's a really interesting case because here's somebody, and it's very well documented, is a germaphobe his whole life. He's such a germaphobe that he, yeah. he won't shake hands with anybody. I know, yeah. It's known. So, and personalist rule, this matters. Um, usually their personal quirks and things matter. So it showed how um, opportunistic, how immoral, lack of principles that they will do and say, anything to keep themselves in power. So Trump is, you know, he flip-flopped. So first he's for the vaccine, but then he started immediately saying, well, governors who are loyal to me can get more. And he started playing kind of divide and rule, which is an autocratic mm-hmm. game that they exactly. all play. So yeah. he did that. He used it for that. And then, you know, he was the first, even though he's a germaphobe, to, you know, he wouldn't go with a mask. Uh, he had mass rallies with elderly people, so a total uncaring uh, for the destiny of humanity. And really, there's a quote that he uh, came out with in, on television. It was during 2020 when um, a journalist said to him that we had reached 100,000 deaths in America. He said, it is what it is. And this to me, I put this in my book, it sums up the uncaring uh, attitude of strongmen. They, and, and when the pandemic first came, I, I gave an interview to a HuffPost, a guy who works on extremism. And I said something that got some people very upset because it seemed very like too tough. And I said, Trump doesn't care if you live or die. He truly doesn't care. And, and some, pe- some people thought this was just such a horrible thing to say. How could that possibly be? 
But if you've immersed yourself in the study of autocrats, you know perfectly well that that's how they think. So right. then Trump's last minute, he kind of then he, he started talking about we should get vaccinated because he realized that one of the reasons he was voted out was his mismanagement of the pandemic. And we see that Bolsonaro in Brazil is... And then now he started to capitalize on the fact that the vaccine actually is working and might as well yes. give credit for it. But, but what's, <laughs> what's the point is that then he was booed and he had created this kind of radicalized uh, populace that doesn't want to hear about that anymore. And so he stopped doing that. So, so the co- his manipulation of COVID messaging and things shows how it's a very good case study in the total lack of morals That's of right. this kind of leader. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I don't want to switch a little bit. In your, also, you mentioned in one of your articles, I believe, and, and I, again, you know, that, that uh, authoritarian leaders nowadays are rising to power by, through election yeah. rather than through a military coup, which used to be more the norm going back 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, what has changed from your perspective that actually, for example, in Hungary, in, in Poland, in the United States, in, in Turkey, there were elections and all of these dictators rose to power through election. And there was no military coup per se. In fact, the last military coup, if I remember right, was Sisi of Egypt, if that, if I don't, um, if I, unless you, you know someone else, going back, um, but that's going back only, um, actually it wasn't quite military coup, he basically pushed Morsi out of power. Yeah. But, you know, asked the people to come to the street, 10 million showed up, said we, we don't want the Muslim Brotherhood, and he pretty much took over a sort of a military coup. So, so, so why is it, you think, they're coming through election and then they begin to accumulate and assume more and more, and more power and they no longer need the military, per se, to back them up in order to rise to power? Yeah, that's interesting. The, uh, I, can't, I keep careful watch in this country about the civilian-military relationship. Um, I think that, you know, the, the golden, it used to be called the golden age of coups, although certainly not by the people who suffered from them, uh, was the Cold War. And many of the coups, certainly in Latin America, were you know, US-backed, and some were Soviet-backed elsewhere. So you had, you had that going on. Um, and when, when the Cold War stopped, and you had, again, Berlusconi is the first one to bring the far right to government, there, there was a shift to realizing that you, you didn't Number one, you didn't need to, to do that. You could start to try and influence um, elections. And, and dictators had always, they'd always, you know, dictators, it's not that they didn't have any elections. They had plebiscites and referenda. So that's this, right. this, that's a little bit overstated when people think that there were no elections and now there are elections. But so you could get away with doing that. The other thing is that um, although the one party state still endures and you know, China and North Korea. But today it's more difficult and less desirable to have a classic one-party state with mass military repression because you have social media, you have citizen journalists. It's harder to get away with that. So, so they realized that they could, take, they could come through elections, which is how Mussolini and 
and even you know Mussolini was. I mean, Hitler was elected actually. Yeah, they they were they were appointed, but they were appointed well Hitler because the party became so popular yeah. in elections. Yeah. Um. So we're going in a way we're going back to to that, and then the the formula of electoral autocracy is that you hold elections and then no one can accuse you of being uh, a dictator, and that's important to people like Orban who have EU funding. And that's yeah. also something that wasn't there. It wasn't as much of a factor before. And even Erdogan is like, oh, I'm not a dictator. We have elections here. So they so, like to have that because they care about uh, public opinion to some extent, international opinion. And the reason they care about international opinion is they need funding. They need, they need, support, they need banks. They need all kinds yeah. of people to, right. to fund their corruption. So if you're going to have elections, then you have to find ways to kind of capture the system. So that's autocratic capture when you kind of domesticate over time the electoral system, the media, the judiciary. And, you know, people have gotten uh, to varying degrees in this project. Um, and so that's how you evolve with that today. Right. Now, you know, um, you, you mentioned... Um... Um, many many steps that need to be taken in order to reverse the trend. But how do you see it coming out? Now, as I said earlier, uh, and, and I believe you concur, that democracy is in retreat, but something has got to be done. And, and what can be done and who's going to do it? I mean, I want to mention some of the things you mentioned, you, you indicated. For example, exposing corruption, encouraging... Uh, <clears throat> Defections of elite who enable strongmen, applying pressure through foreign institutions, encouraging unity among the leader's opponent, persecuting elect- So you mentioned a number of things that need to be taken, which is all right and all correct. The question is, how do you bring this about? How do you bring this about? Uh, let's take let's take a, a, a real example. Let's take here the United States, and let's take uh, another country, Turkey. How do you bring about that kind of change? This one has not has gone as far as Turkey as everyone has, but that one, in fact, reached that uh, a plateau, so to speak. So, how do you how do you affect how these kind of changes in order to uh, restore the the integrity of democracy in this country and 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 to the extent possible, of course, in Turkey. Yeah, in in Turkey, it's sometimes when you when you have a a kind of entrenched uh, system. And now, you know, Erdogan is, is not just the head of state, you know, he's kind of appropriated the prime minister position or made it, you know, stripped it of any power. And so nobody can kind of get close to him. But um, so sometimes in, in there, that country, you, you can't really even have what's happening in Hungary and in Serbia where the opposition is uniting. So some people think, you know, that Erdogan is getting much less popular as his economic, uh, you know, agenda yes. has stalled. And, you know, I, I, I interview Turkish exiles and other people. And, you know, the younger generation doesn't really think that he's going in the right direction. And so over time, you develop a, enough of a people who are disaffected and then um, are, are sick of the economic inequalities that happen because these guys are thieves. They're, they're all corrupt. And so over time, their corruption has a price, like in Putin's Russia, where 3% of the population, you know, owns 90% of the assets. Um, 
So, so there's, that's, that's something that happens kind of organically over time. Um, now in our country, we, we did an amazing thing, uh, very rare in the history of the, of autocracy because Trump was in the middle of his process of autocratic capture and he's a formidable propagandist and all of that. And we voted him out in a pandemic Mm -hmm. because, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and before that, the, the kind of women's march, it, it's right. been a process and we, it's easy to be, to forget about that. So you had the women's march, which actually translated into a renewal of the political system after the 2018 midterms, all kinds of like hundreds of new people who were progressive came into the system and all of this. And then you had Black Lives Matter in a pandemic and people turned out to vote. So, so we can't forget that that's there. And I think we're going to see a resurgence of civic protest and, uh, you know, maybe around the midterms. Um, so we know what to do. The challenge is, do we have, can we do it in enough time to create a real united pro-democracy movement? And, you know, it's very, it's such a huge country. Like if you think about places like Israel or, or there's two, two differences. One is, it's such a huge country. So it's not Chile, it's not Israel. The second, which is really a, uh, an issue, is we don't have uh, coalition governments. We've got these two parties. Mm-hmm. If you only have two parties and one of them has become an authoritarian party, you can't do that kind of movement and, and dynamism where you can get a coalition together to right. oppose. So that's the challenge that we have. And uh, So... The democracy, as, as we, I think, both agree, it's, it's being challenged. And um, what what are the specific steps? I mean, given given where we are today, if we look at, the, for example, in the United States, uh, and everyone who's making any kind of projection about the election 2022 feel that the, 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 the Republicans are probably going to capture uh, the House and, they, and, and possibly in the Senate as well. And that is in spite of the fact of what happened because of the pandemic, Trump after all lost the election two years ago or a year and a half ago, whatever. And where is the movement is going to come now to stop this the Republican Party from recapturing the House and the Senate and potentially even Trump himself could come back 2024. So where, where, where are these forces that you know, we want to talk that we wish they were there are going to come and play that kind of role in order to stop this horrifying trend that's taking place. Well, they're there, but they're not united in a way that is um, going to make a difference yet. And the, the other thing that it's also messaging, um, for example, we need to communicate to business community, to financial community, that autocracy is not good for business. This is one of the big myths. Uh, one of, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to bust all these myths. You know, it's good for big business or if you're in the oil or the arms industry, but, but small businesses uh, are preyed upon by Erdogan, by Orban. And so we, we need to make people realize what the stakes are um, across the board. So labor has to ally. We need faith leaders um, who, are, who are already very active to be part of a bigger um, cross kind of sector um, democracy movement that its goal is to get people to vote also, to get the 80 million people who didn't vote in 2020, some of them out there. 
Um, that that these are things that are proven to work in the past, in even in a con- condition of uh, greater autocracy. So we don't have really any excuse. We we still have we have a democracy. We have Biden in office, and although individual states have made it much harder to protest, decriminalizing you know people who want to fire on protesters, we're still in a democracy, so we can act. But the problem, the problem is that we talked a little bit about it before. You know, we have a democracy. Let us assume we will save it, and there will be uh, Biden will have to be reelected. But look what's happening. Uh, our democracy today, as we see it, is not delivering. Biden has failed so far, not because of his own fault, but he has not did not getting support even from his own party. You have uh, Senator Manchin as well as Senator Sinema who oppose his uh, better, build better back. Um, so the democracy, even under the current circumstances right here, is not delivering what I, the people yeah. want, what the people expect. So why, why, why do you think? I mean, having a democracy in and of itself obviously is not good enough unless democracy delivers. And we are seeing now, we are witnessing that even here, right now, Biden hasn't been able to deliver something that is so crucial. It would have changed the course of where the United States would be in five, ten years down the line. So yeah. what do you do in order to rectify something that's going to take more than just writing about it or talking about it? It's going to take a movement. Who's going to mobilize that kind of movement? But, yeah, I see Biden in a different light. The things that he's doing... Uh, are absolutely revolutionary in terms of reducing the conditions that cause autocracy. And I think he's had with American Rescue Plan and the economy is pretty good considering... No, mind you, I'm supporting him and I think he's doing a great yeah. job. Contrary to the views that he's doing, his failing. Yeah, no, but I know. By way of example, I'm bringing it, that. It's a, perf- it's a perception problem. And I yeah. also think that Manchin and Cinema are two people and they've had, because of our system, lets them have uh, outsized importance, but they're two people who are rogues and don't belong in that party at all. The rest of the party is firmly behind Biden. So a lot of the problem is that after the several years of trauma from the pandemic uh, and and Trump, people are disaffected and despairing. And Biden's actually doing what he needs to do, but the uh, the media also is highly critical of him. And there's this kind of mobilization around the idea that he might be failing and that's that's absolutely lethal that's lethal i agree i fully so it's not it's not that it's not so much what he needs to do it's it's a perception problem um um, in part and and then the other part is civil society and i already talked about that to to mobilize now tell me just finally i'd like to ask you you know do you feel optimistic that things will get better or you, or you feel pessimistic that it can get worse before they can get better in terms of the rise and fall of authoritarianism? In, in general, uh, around the world or in America? Well, around the world first and then we can talk yeah. about Yeah, I do think that we're, we are at this very interesting point where definitely authoritarians are on the rise, but we're also seeing... Um, the pandemic has, I talked about how the pandemic has been good for autocrats, but the pandemic also has shown people very concretely the costs of bad leadership, the costs of uncaring leadership, of, crim- of corrupt leadership. 
And so you, you, you have interesting things going on, especially with younger people who, who feel, are mobilizing in large numbers. Uh, they feel it's not sustainable. Autocracy is not sustainable for the environment, for the economy. So look what happened in Chile. And, you know, it's easy to see Chile as a marginal country, but it's actually been very important as a bellwether. And you had a recent presidential election and you had a, a businessman who was praising Pinochet, who was for stability and patriotism and a strong economy. Well, he lost to mm. a 35-year-old former right. student right. activist right. who is a pr open progressive. Right. And now we that's the head of of Chile now. And right. so there are a lot of those energies around the world in, in Brazil too. And, and so there's, so it's, there are many, many autocrats are up for election this year, um, a re-election, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It, 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 we could be on an arc where it's, it's, it may have to peak, but then it's, uh, I think generationally, there's going to be a big change. Well, I I, um, I love the, the, the that we are hopefully we are getting to that point. We I would like to think we're already at peak, and let's begin now the, the the process of going back to some sort of democratic normalcy. Um, I don't know how long that's going to take, but I'm hoping that things will will change. You know, I uh, we could continue this for for a long time, but I want to really thank you so much for taking the time, and hopefully. We can discuss in more details the book at one point, if you wish. Sure. Uh, yeah, the book itself, you know, you know, chapter by chapter, so to speak. So thank you again for taking the time. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.